And so he wrote this letter. He wrote, as we've seen over the past several months, reminding his audience that there really is nothing to go back to. At least nothing that can compare with the surpassing greatness that has been, or the surpassing revelation that's been given us in Jesus Christ. Just as the wizard Gandalf reminded Bilbo that the world was not to be found in his books and maps, but was outside, out his front door, so the author of Hebrews exhorts us that hope is not to be found in retreating to our old practices and comfort zones, but in looking to Christ impressing on and the confidence that he really is better, that he is greater, that he's more than any other alternative we could possibly place our hope in, and that he's faithful to see us through. In our passage this morning, the author is going to continue along these lines, exhorting us to live in accordance with who Christ is, our great high priest, and all that he has done in inaugurating this new covenant. And as he does this, he begins to give us so they begin, begin to give us practical daily steps or means to help us walk in light of this Christ-centered reality, to live a life of worship, not turning back, but pressing on together with endurance. Okay, so with this in mind, we're going to get into our passage this morning. We're going to begin reading at verse 19, and we're going to read through verse 25 to begin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just just come before you this morning and and, and, and we thank you for your word. And, and as we've sung in, in the songs this morning, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We thank you for the work he did at the cross and for the grace that he lavished upon us, God. And we ask, God, that this word that you have written to us here in the book of Hebrews would speak to our hearts and minds this morning that by your spirit you would just communicate with us this morning, that, you're, that you would awaken in us new understanding of who you are and who we are in you, God. Just ask, Lord, that your word would move powerfully among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning's letter, or this morning's passage in Hebrews marks a transition Um, a shift in the letter of Hebrews. Up until now, as we said, the writer is mostly concerned with building his argument, with convincing his readers that Jesus is truly better. But here now, having established his case, the author begins to pivot, to pivot upon the foundation that he has laid and offer an invitation now to come and worship the living God, or better put, to continue on, to press on in worship. Look with me again quickly at verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us. And we're going to look at those let us soon. But the word here, therefore, I love when there's a therefore at the beginning of a passage because it helps me know that something's being highlighted here. There's a transition going on. Based on what happened before, we're now reading ahead. And this transition is from pastoral explanation and exposition, as he's been doing throughout the course of the letter, to move now into pastoral exhortation and application. In other words, the author has made his arguments, and now in light of these, and because of these, he's making his appeal to the people in his care. He's saying, because we have a great high priest who's gone before us, who shed his blood on our behalf at the cross for the forgiveness of sins, who has made a way for us to enter the holiest of places through the curtain, that's through his flesh, which was broken on the cross for us. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, let us live a life of worship, not turning back to other things, but pressing on together with endurance. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We're looking at verses 19 through 25. However, before we do so, I'd like to make a few observations about the following verses, verses 26 through 31, because they contain a very sober warning that informs our passage this morning. So if you guys would read with me, we're going to keep reading from 26 through 31. The writer says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy upon the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, that the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Here the author offers a stark depiction of the hopelessness and judgment that await those who, who with disdain willfully reject or repudiate the gospel of Jesus Christ. He reminds his audience that the cast aside, the person and work of Christ, is to forfeit the hope of salvation and to turn their backs on the spirit of grace. If not to Christ, the great high priest, where else could we possibly turn for mercy and grace, he's saying. What sacrifice could possibly remain for those who reject the sacrifice of Jesus himself, of the blood that he shed? Now, over the years, over the centuries, much has been made of this passage, and, and not all of it good. But I think the main question has got to be and has been asked is that, is the author teaching that a believer in Christ can lose their salvation? Or to put it another way, is he saying that it's possible for Christ to lose one of his people? And this question has haunted many over the years. Some, in centuries past, even went so far as to put off baptism until their deathbed, so as to avoid deliberately sinning afterwards and thereby missing out on salvation. 
and many other things have come of this passage. However, I think taken in context, both the immediate context of our letter, but also in the scope of Scripture itself, I think we can safely say this is not what's being conveyed here in this passage. After all, the author is writing this letter to encourage his people, to encourage believers to endure in their faith, to keep looking to Jesus. And I believe this warning is in keeping with that line of exhortation. He's saying, if Christ is truly who he says he is, then what is there to go back to? There's really nothing behind except judgment, wrath, and despair. Yet there's always this temptation to turn back. We sang Come Thou Fount earlier. Actually, every song that we sang was so applicable. We sang Come Thou Fount earlier, and one of the lines is, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. There's always that temptation to wander. Like Bilbo Baggins, when the road gets hard, we can very easily begin to yearn for our old hobbit hole. And in these verses, we're reminded that in these verses, we're reminded that what, what in fact is behind us, of what in fact is behind us, and we're called to press on. And if we keep on reading, and I really don't want to steal much from Ryan's next message next week, but if we keep on reading, we see that the author goes on to say that he is confident they will persevere. That just as they had in the past endured struggle and hardship and suffering, even imprisonment, so they would continue to endure to the end. His confidence culminates in verse 39 where he wrote, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. And the author's certainty here, his suretude, isn't based on wishful thinking, but on scripture and on the assurance of Jesus, who in John chapter 10, verse 28 to 29 said, I will give them, or I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Christians may take heart. We can take heart knowing that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, that in Christ we are already seated in heavenly places that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. But there's another reason the author wrote this, included this warning here, because he knew that there were those who were in the church that were not yet in Christ. And here in verses 26 to 31, he issues a clear pastoral warning to them as well, to those who've heard the gospel, who may even have kind of joined the community of Christ, but not yet come into fellowship with him, not yet come into repentance and redeemed relationship with Christ. His warning is, you have heard the truth. You've sat under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no place else to look. There are no greener pastures elsewhere, no hope of forgiveness or salvation <clears throat> to be found, excuse me, no hope of salvation to be found outside Christ. So come, come while it's still today. Repent, rejoice in the salvation that's so graciously offered in Christ and in the fellowship of his body, the church. So it's a warning to those who may have heard the gospel to say, come, repent. And as a reminder to us and a warning to us who, who, who are in Christ, not to settle, not to sit back, but to press on, 
because what is behind us can't compare to what lies ahead. But all this to say, what, what do we do with this warning? How do we respond to it? And I think that question of response, how do we respond to it? Well, that brings us full circle because the author has already given us the answer. In the opening verses of his passage, he says, because of Christ Jesus, our great high priest, our once and for all sacrifice, he writes, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us continue to encourage one another. Each of these let us statements are not simply invitations or even commands, but they are means, they are gifts of grace by which we continue on in the worship of our God, steps by which the Holy Spirit leads us daily to walk out our faith. Taken together, they are a call to worship and follow our Savior, to look to him no matter the circumstances, and to trust him no matter the cost, remembering that he really is greater. That he really is who he says he is. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at and applying each of these three pastoral exhortations. Are you guys still with me? Need a stretch? Anything? Okay. Look with me now, um, sorry, look with me now at verses, uh, verse 22, we're going to start there. The author says, in light of everything we've talked about, in light of this great high priest, in, great, in light of this better Moses, better prophet, in light of this new covenant that he's inaugurated, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This first let us statement is a call to approach God, a reminder that, as the author wrote in chapter 4, verse 16, that we may now come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace. And this, this is the great reversal of the fall. In the Garden of Eden, after they'd sinned, God cast Adam and Eve out of his presence. But now, in Christ, we are beckoned to return where God's people, after he rescued them from bondage in Egypt, were commanded in Exodus 19 not to approach God's presence on Mount Sinai. Now in Christ, we've been given a new commandment. Let us draw near. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 13, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in verses 18 and 19, For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints, excuse me, and members of the household of God. We who are once far off from God have been brought near in Christ. We who are once hostile in heart toward God, lost in sin, now have peace with him through the transforming work of his Holy Spirit. We who were once rebels and exiles are now fellow citizens, saints, and members of God's own household. I love how 1 John chapter 1, verse 12 puts it. But to all who did receive him, all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And again in chapter 3, verse 1, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given us 
that we should be called children of God. So when God looks at us, he sees his son. When the father looks at us and he's always looking at us, he sees his children. That should blow our minds. I know we've talked about this a few times, but when God looks at us, he sees his kids. The Oval Office in the White House is known for being a very intimidating space. And that facet was intentional. The idea being that when it was designed, the idea being that when someone entered the office, they would be acutely aware that, aware that they were entering the presence of the United States of America. And as such, they would feel the weight of the office upon them. It was intended that the entrant would experience proper awe and reverence due the office of the president. There's actually a lot of funny stories about that. But there are a series of famous black and white photos that were taken during the presidency of John F. Kennedy that showed two individuals who were in no way intimidated by being in the Oval Office. In fact, just the opposite. They seemed to revel in being there. They ran. They jumped. They made faces, even going so far as to brazenly climb on and under the president's desk. And then after such behavior, they expected to be embraced by the most powerful man in the world. So if you're not sure who those are, that was JFK's sons, John and Caroline. Now I know, I know that analogy might break down. I know that we are called to experience awe and reverence in the presence of God. And maybe we shouldn't hide under his desk. Or maybe we should, depending on how we're using the analogy. But one thing is certain. In Christ, we now experience awe and reverence for God, our loving Heavenly Father, and not our distant and dreadful judge. That's why Jesus taught, or Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, verse 9, told them to pray like this, our Father in heaven, our Father. We're not commanded to approach some distant deity who's only aware of us because he's all-powerful and all-knowing. No, we're called to run to the arms of our loving, heavenly Father. When we pray, when we sing, when we open the word, we are coming before our loving Father. So let us draw near. Because of Christ, we are invited to come. And then having called us to draw near, the author of Hebrews goes on. In verse 23, he says, Also, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This second let us statement is a call to press on. To continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is both our future hope and who has promised to see us through the realities of this life. Allow me to share a little story that might illustrate, might illuminate, I don't know. Back in high school, I used to run track. It was the longest two years of my life. I could just never figure out the art of running. 
For all intents and purposes, I should have been a good runner. I was tall, I was skinny, I had long legs, I was burdened with an overabundance of energy. It just begged to be harnessed to something useful. But in the end, I just wasn't, I just wasn't good. It just wasn't good. The coach would have me run either the mile or the half mile, sometimes the 800-yard dash, and honestly, it wasn't fun. I couldn't pace myself. I'd either start too fast and lag way behind, start too slow and not be able to catch up, and be in pain most of the way through. I just couldn't figure it out. Most days, I just wanted to quit, and I wasn't sure why it was so hard for me. I mean, I stretched. I practiced. I bought those Nike Air Runner things that were big in the 90s, you know, to make my feet feel better. They didn't. I drank those awful protein shakes. They're supposed to, you know, help me recover faster. They didn't. The the problem was that I just, I, I think I started, I think when I started, I had this picture in my mind of what it would be like. I'd run, I'd get better, I'd win medals, I'd get a varsity letter. I up my popularity. I don't know. I mean, I was in high school. What do you think when you're in high school? I just had this idea of what running would be. But in the end, I just, I just found it to be hard and exhausting, at times painful, oftentimes painful. But, um, and, I, and I just didn't think it was worth it. And I didn't have a lot of hope that it would get better. So eventually I just stopped running. But this humiliating anecdote aside... I kind of think the author was writing to a people who may have felt a lot like I did during my track days. And he didn't want them to lose heart or, God forbid, try to quit the team. So he wrote to them, reminding them that unlike me running track, they have an abiding hope. And he calls them here to hold fast to that hope. In many ways, this, this statement, this let us here is at the heart of the whole book of Hebrews because people were, the people were beginning to wonder if holding fast to Christ was really worth it. Over the years, some had been disowned. Others had been thrown in prison. Many faced regular ridicule, mockery, the loss of property and business. It was to a people on the precipice of intense persecution that the author was writing and exhorting to hold fast to Christ. And as history would bear out, things were going to get harder for these Christians. Soon persecutions would be widespread across the Roman Empire, and they would face not only opposition and the loss of material standing, but many would lose their lives for the sake of Christ. And if you think about it, in light of this, in light of what was beginning to take place around them, in light of the storm clouds that were were gathering on the near horizon, it's, it's at least understandable that one might begin to think about turning back, about shutting it down or at least maybe holding up. I mean, often the best way to weather a storm is to what? You drop the sails, you batten down the hatches, whatever that means in nautical language, and that's that's one of the best things you can do. But instead, the author exhorts them to do just the opposite. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. He's calling them, no, 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 don't patten down, don't drop the sails, don't patten down the hatches, hoist the sails, press on into the storm. Trust the faithful one who promised to go with us on the journey. 
Come what may, he wrote, let us hold fast to all that we've been given, the hope that we've been given in Christ Jesus, a hope that transcends the struggles and hardships of this life, a hope that stands against the darkness of sin and oppression, a hope that has even overcome the grave itself. In chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, the author wrote, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is the confession of our hope, is Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our better once and for all sacrifice, who has both gone before us into glory and at the same time has promised that he will never leave us alone. Look at me really quickly over in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Jesus encourages disciples, his disciples, with a promise to their future. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. But now, jump down with me to verse 15. He goes on and says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. See, our hope is both present and future. It's both now and not yet. Christ has assured us of what is to come and promised that his spirit would be with us along the way, making his presence known. And so the author here in Hebrews is calling us to hold fast to the confession of this hope. He says, hold fast. We hold fast by centering our lives upon this reality that Jesus is our great high priest. This reality that he has gone before us into the heavens, that he has made a way for us to follow him. This is our hope that we hold to. But we, also, we hold fast also by drawing our hearts and our minds to what we've been given him or given in him a new covenant whereby we may approach daily the throne of grace with boldness. We're not told to keep at a distance. We're called to approach. We hold fast by remembering that we have been forgiven our sins. Now the Holy Spirit, the promised helper, now resides within us. This is our hope. We hold fast the confession of our hope by making it known by proclaiming Jesus, by living out the great commission which he gave his followers in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I love this. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now and not yet. And we hold fast by encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to press on in the faith. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. And this brings us to the third and final let us of our passage this morning. So look with me. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of think this exhortation is often the hardest one for us. We're like, draw near, check. I'm good with that. Hold fast the confession of my hope, check. Yeah. I like that. That's good. Spur one another on to love and good works. Um, let me think about that for a minute. What's that going to require of me? What are we talking about here? Not neglecting to meet together. Uh, yeah. You see, that could be a problem. You see, stuff's really busy right now. My job is crazy. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I don't know if I can do that. I just really need some, I need some me time. Hmm. Encouraging one another. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want to encourage people. I want to be an encourager, but it's just not how I'm wired. It's just not, it's just not, it's just not me. And plus, that probably means I have to be around people, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Fifteen years ago, almost fifteen years ago, George Barna, a Christian author and expert in market research, you probably heard the name, the Barna Group, they do all kind of polls and stuff in election season. He predicted the next big trend among evangelicals would be disconnection. He wrote in his 2005 book, Revolution, that in response to the undeniable and insatiable human longing for a genuine relationship with God our Father, the future expression of evangelical Christianity will not be found within local gatherings of Christian believers, but will consist of independent believers who are determined to let nothing stand in the way of an authentic and genuine experience with God, and that this shift will entail drawing people away from reliance upon the local church into a deeper connection and reliance upon God. See, Barna thought that this lessening connection to the local church would be a good thing, a revolution, he thought, because it would free believers up for authentic Christian experience. However, whether he realized it or not, and I'm assuming not, he described the very habit of some that the author was concerned about here and was addressing in this passage. What Barna missed in offering his prescription, prescription? Yeah, prescription for genuine experience with God <clears throat> is that this third exhortation to encourage one another is crucial to the first two. 
meaning we'll have little success drawing near and holding fast if we're not also encouraging one another along the way, if we're not regularly stirring one another up to love and good works. Just a few months ago, I read an article in USA Today. It was entitled, Online Church, Using Virtual Reality Apps to Deliver Digital Services and Virtual Baptisms. It's not funny. I mean, it's funny. It's not funny. <clears throat> this was, I forget, I didn't write it down. March, May or March. It's one of the M's in the spring. The crux of the article being that more and more people are plugging into church using digital avatars, using little characters that look a lot like those little Miis we used to create on the Nintendo Wii. Remember those? You could make them look like you and everything else. Yeah. Um, and the reasons that were given for this uptick in VR church were many. Some just found it to be fun. Others just liked that it was different. While others seemed to appreciate the anonymity of it. But some things seemed consistent across the board. Virtual reality church is easier. It's less messy. It allows a person to do Christianity on their own terms without all the interpersonal entanglements that regular church entails. In the words of one person interviewed for the article, they said, nowadays, you can really build out your own faith plan without going to church. <clears throat> Excuse me. These are just two examples in a growing trend among evangelicals, which more and more reveals that one of the biggest idols in the evangelical church is individualism. It's the Asherah pole around which we can dance or which we find ourselves dancing at times. Sure, often we're, we, we can, we're all about faith in Christ. We're all about right doctrine, walking in the spirit, even, even loving our neighbors. As long as these pursuits don't clash with my personal rights, my personal agenda, and my freedom to just live my own life. But the problem with this way of thinking and living is scripture makes it clear that, that we who are in Christ are not free to live our own lives, but we're bound in love to our Savior. We're bound in love to our brothers and sisters, to our neighbors, and even to our opponents, our enemies. We've been set free, not free unto ourselves, but free unto our Savior, unto our great high priest, unto God and his calling on our lives. Sinclair Ferguson, in a commentary on the Philippians, wrote, It's an important aspect of the New Testament's understanding of the gospel that Christ not only draws us to himself by his Spirit's work, he also draws us nearer to each other. Our commitment to Christ always implies and impels a commitment to Christ's people to love and care for his brothers is to love and care for him. To put it another way, <clears throat> excuse my voice, to put it another way, there's no such thing as a purely vertical faith. Rather, true faith is both vertical and is horizontal. We cannot live a life of fellowship with and worship to God if we're not also living a life of fellowship with and service to one another. And over and over, Again, we hear this echoed in Scripture. 
Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 through 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, the disciple wrote, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. The Christian life is not solitary, but corporate. It's not meant to be lived alone or, 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 or on our own, but it's meant to be lived in fellowship and in community. We who were once lost and far from God and then lost in isolation, far from one another, have now been saved for relationship with our Heavenly Father and delivered from our lonely exile and placed in a new God-given family. And because of this, because of this God, because of the love and the grace that God has poured out upon us, we are called to pour out love and grace on one another and on others. <clears throat> the late British missiologist Leslie Newbigin, <clears throat> I always love how he sums things up, but he put it this way, a salvation whose very essence is that it is corporate and cosmic, the restoration of the broken harmony between all men and between man and God and between man and nature must be communicated in a different way. It must be communicated in and by the actual development of a community which embodies, if only in foretaste, the restored harmony of which it speaks. A gospel of reconciliation can only be communicated by a reconciled community. So let us encourage one another. Let us seek ways to stir one another up regularly to love and good works. That's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to. But how do we do this? How do we live this out practically? How do we encourage one another? How do we stir one another up? You know, at New City, we want to be a church that is constantly wrestling with this question and seeking new ways to walk it out and answer it. That's why we gather so often, not just on Sunday mornings like we're doing now, but it's why we do city groups throughout the week which kick off next Sunday. And so we can gather in one another's homes, around table, around hearth. We can pray for one another. We can lift one another up. It's why we encourage everyone in New City to be in a DNA group. Two, three guys, two, three girls getting together regularly so you can get to know one another, so you can encourage one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. It's why we do men's and women's retreats and Bible studies. It's why we host community breakfasts and family feasts to encourage one another to draw near to God and to hold fast the confession of our hope hand in hand with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are no longer lost. 
No longer left to imagine that we somehow belong to ourselves. But by the grace of God, we are found and we belong to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we belong, in that we belong to one another as brothers and sisters and co-heirs of the heavenly the promises of our Heavenly Father. And as such, we are called to willingly, even joyfully, lay down our rights, our agendas, even our lives in the service of God and one another. No longer scattered and broken and alone, we are, in the words of the Apostle Peter, even now being built up together into a new people, into a royal priesthood, into a holy nation of God's own possession who in word and in deed proclaim the greatness, proclaim the goodness, proclaim the love of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are no longer orphans, but in Christ we are now sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of God. In Christ we are now a family. So I want our banners here somewhere. We're a family. And as a family, we gather each week to worship, to sing songs. And as a family, we gather each week around the table. We gather each week around our Lord's table. And in this corporate liturgy, we get to in this liturgy we get to practice with one another. There is a picture, a tangible embodiment of the message of our passage this morning. Here, we set aside time each Sunday at the culmination of our service to remember and give thanks to God our Father that we now have confidence to draw near, that we can now enter the holiest places because of the blood of Jesus that he shed for us on the cross, and that we have a new and living way that he made for us through the curtain, that's through his flesh that was broken on our behalf. And so this morning as a family, as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters in Christ, let us together draw near. Let us together hold fast the confession of our hope, which is our great high priest, our once and for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And let us go from here encouraging one another regularly spurring one another on to love and good works. And if you're here today and you're struggling, if you're here today and you're thinking of turning back, if like old Bilbo Baggins, you find yourself longing for familiar comforts, for the seemingly safer harbor of yesterday's practices and habits, let me encourage you this morning. There is nothing behind that compares to what lies ahead in Christ Jesus. There is nothing behind that compares to what lies ahead in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, please come take communion with us this morning. Please celebrate with us the finished work of our great high priest, the assurance of his ongoing presence in our midst and the promise of his return. The way we take communion at New City is we form two lines here in the center. 
you break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. We also have some gluten-free bread here in the center for those of you that would prefer that. Let's pray as the servers come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Him and in His once and for all sacrifice, we may with confidence draw near. That you call us with confidence to draw near. And God, we ask that by your grace, you would give us, you would, we would hold fast to the confession of this hope. This hope that Christ has gone before us and his spirit is present with us, Lord. That come what may, God, you walk with us and you are faithful to see us through, God. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would continue to spur us on to encourage one another, Lord, in love and good works, God, that you would encourage us to serve one another, to pour out our lives for one another, Lord, that you would continue in your grace to make us a people who love well, who care well, a people who bear witness to you in our lives and how we love one another. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the grace that was poured out of the cross. We thank you that the cross was not the end, but that Christ rose again from the grave, that he ascended into heaven, that he pierced that heavenly curtain, entered in, and that in him we are already seated in heavenly places. God, we thank you that it's by grace. It's not by our own strength, because if it were by our own strength, we'd be helpless. But we have hope because of Christ, our great high priest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.